Good evening, everyone. Quite a few years ago, I was leading a retreat in New Mexico. And at the end of the retreat, I had this fascinating conversation with one of the yogis that was on the retreat. He was someone who had spent most of his formative years, his years when he was younger, growing up and practicing in a Mahayana monastery. And there was something on the retreat that I was leading that he was quite puzzled by. And in particular, the puzzlement came up often in the Q&A. And he said he felt puzzled around these questions that some of the yogis were asking about what kind of what the the benefits were of the practice for their lives. Like a yogi would ask, well, how does meditation benefit my life? Or a question such as um, any kind of question around, am I progressing on my path or am I not progressing on my path? And these kinds of questions he was sincerely puzzled by. And he said, when he reflected on it, he, he felt that the reason was is that in this Mahayana monastery that he had grown up, there was such a strong emphasis to practice for all beings that these kind of questions just didn't arise. The context was different. So for him, a practice that was merely for his own benefit was, you could say, a foreign land. It was a foreign language. And he wasn't critical of it. It just didn't make sense to him. And since I have been one of those yogis that asks those kinds of questions, I've, I've come to appreciate his perspective and come to realize the vast importance for a practice to be held with an intention for all beings. Holding your practice in a way that's broader than just my own journey. It's actually made quite a difference from my path. And, and I want to point out, having those questions or the concerns, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that what I want to share with you tonight is the benefit of having a broader perspective on what we're doing here and having uh, the benefit of, of a deeper intention. So that's exactly what I want to share with you is, is these reflections on practicing for the benefit of all beings while practicing for ourselves. And for some of you, it's just going to be a reminder of maybe what you already include in your practice. And for others, it might be something new that you, you might want to reflect upon. And the Buddha speaks to this in a discourse in the numerical discourses called the Firebrand Sutta. And he gives this analogy. He says, just as from a cow comes milk, from milk, curds, from curds, butter, from butter, ghee, from ghee, the skimmings of ghee, and of these, the skimmings of ghee are reckoned the foremost, the most refined. 
In the same way, the individual who practices for their own benefit and for that of, of others is the foremost, the most refined, the chief, the most outstanding, the highest and supreme. Right? Just as the skimmings of ghee are the, the finest, so is the practitioner that not only practices for their own benefit, for, but, but also for the benefit of all beings. And later on in Buddhism, this flowers into this uh, practice and the teachings on bodhicitta. And just a few words about that word, bodhicitta. Bodhi is, can be translated as awakening or enlightenment, and citta is heart or mind. So this intention to practice for the benefit of all beings is, you could say, the heart of awakening. And on the relative level, level it's just that, that, that altruistic intention. Yet there's also absolute bodhicitta, which is the wisdom or the realization of in- emptiness. The wisdom that sees through the illusion of a separate fixed sense of self. And, and tonight I want to talk about both of these qualities of bodhicitta and how they're intertwined. And how it can be helpful for a long retreat like this. How is it helpful? For me, when I, when I include it, and I'll talk about how to include it in just a moment here. For me, it brings me into, a, into contact with this beautiful quality of heart, namely this beautiful quality of compassion. And to talk about this, what I'd like to do is to share with you an example of this, this quality of compassion that, that I hope to connect with what we're doing here on this retreat. And the example is the story of a certain village in France, uh, the village of uh, La Chabonne sur Lignon, which is in south central France, and in particular during the Second World War between 1940 and 1944. It was a striking village, uh, La Chabonne sur Lignon, and also the villages around that, that whole area. Because the interesting thing is, is between 1940 and 1944, the entire area took on hiding Jews from the Nazis. And most of them were children. It said they saved probably between three to 5,000 lives. And even helped some of them flee into Switzerland where they could have more safety. Here were these, this entire village or entire villages putting their own lives at risk out of compassion and caring. Their own lives at risk in order to protect and support these people, these children who are literally being round up. Can you hear the tremendous amount of courage and also love that's infused in that kind of compassion. To care that deeply. 
And in this area around uh, La Chabon sur Lignon, it was inhabited by um, a group of Protestants called Huguenots. And some of you might know that they were, they were actually persecuted by uh, the Catholic authorities for centuries, between the 16th and 18th centuries. Marginalized. These were people that were oppressed. They knew what oppression was about. They knew suffering. And from that arose this beautiful and striking compassion for these, these children, these adults who are being round up. And I'd like to say that, that this is a kind of compassion as a result of what they had gone through that was filled with wisdom. A kind of wisdom, as the Australian Aboriginal activist Lilla Watson said, she said, if you have come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come here because your liberation is tied with my liberation, then let's work together. If you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if, if you have come here because you've realized that your liberation is tied with my liberation, then let's work together. Coming to understand how your own liberation is tied to a much larger fabric than just my life, my path. Sensing into that larger fabric of all beings. This is the kind of compassion to aspire to. And I actually feel that this practice that you're doing here calls for a similar internal movement that was, you could say, outwardly expressed in those villages. You could say an internal response to the internal oppression that you might have experienced already. Have you noticed that about these crazy minds of ours? The kind of suffering that they can create? And the importance to have this quality of a courageous compassion that's needed for what you're doing here. And I want to be clear, in this internal environment that I'm talking about, it's important to see just when I'm talking about this analogy that we're also coming to see that there there are no enemies on this journey to see through that kind of construction. Shantideva, who wrote the Bodhicharya Vitara, which is usually translated as the way of the Bodhisattva, gives beautiful words to this intention that I'm talking about, to this quality of compassion, exemplified by these villages from 1940 to 1944. And this text actually is the, it's said to be the Dalai Lama's most favorite text. 
And it really is one of the most beloved texts in, in all the schools of, of Tibetan Buddhism. And before I share with you some of the words of Shanti Deva, I invite you to keep in mind that, that the Bodhicharya Vitara is a kind of meditation manual. It's a, it's, it's a manual about how to train the mind. Or you could say it's a manual about, in some ways, what we're doing here. And to be forewarned, it is grand and over-the-top description of practicing for the benefit of all beings. I kind of like over-the-top. This is how he expresses this intention. He says, May I become food and drink during times of famine. May I be an inexhaustible, inexhaustible treasury, treasury for the destitute. May I be the protector for those who are without protectors, a guide for travelers, and a boat, a bridge, and a ship for those who wish to cross over. May I be a lamp for those who seek light, a bed for those who seek rest, and may I be a servant for all beings who desire a servant. To all sentient beings, may I be a wish-fulfilling gem, a vase of good fortune, an efficacious mantra, a great medication, a wish-fulfilling tree, and a wish-granting cow. Just as earth and other elements are useful in various ways to innumerable sentient beings dwelling throughout infinite space, so may I be in various ways a source of life for the sentient beings present throughout space until they're all liberated. And then at the end of the Bodhicharya Vitara, he sums it up just in these, these lines by saying, as long as space endures and for as long as beings remain, until then, may I too endure to dispel the misery of the world. I find those striking words. Right? As long as space endures and as long as beings remain, until then may I too endure to dispel the misery of the world. This is a deep aspiration, a deep intention. And sometimes when I hear this, maybe the question arises for you also, what does such a deep intention have to do with paying attention to your breath? (laughs) What's the connection? You know, maybe feeding the, the people living on the streets or joining a march in New York might fit. But actually what I want to propose is that what you're doing here, that this practice, I feel, is a kind of social action. A vital and important social action. Not one that that takes the place of other social action. Please, don't get me wrong here. All of those things are very important. But this too is vital if we hold such an intention.
such a deep intention filled with compassion. I mean, just on a side note, it's striking later on the Bodhicharya Vitara, Shanti Deva says something like, Oh my God, what have I done? Made this huge intention <laughs> to save all beings. What have I gotten myself into? This is crazy. <laughs> it's a good, good point, I think. And, uh, and, and I love his response. I think it's, it's around his chapter on generosity. You know, he has these grand things of being able to give one's body. He says, okay, so we're n- I'm not there yet. So we start with something sep- simple, just giving a few vegetables. So I want to point out it's okay to aspire high, and then we start simply. And in particular, what I'm inviting you, the way to kind of offer vegetables in this realm, is just to add one small thing to your practice. And that's at the beginning of, you could have it at the beginning of the morning, or at the beginning of each sit, or the beginning of each practice period, to simply make this intention that what you're doing goes for the benefit of all beings. So, for example, when I'm up here and bowing, that's when I make that intention before I I come into my sitting posture. May this go for the benefit of all beings. And then I drop it, and I do, do the practice, I engage in the practice, and then at the end, when I'm doing my bows, Again, it's a similar intention. May the merit of this practice go for the benefit of all beings. Just that simple, I I found, uh, makes such a huge difference in my practice. And and I also want to be clear around this, just another specific thing, is it, it doesn't matter not to worry if you're feeling it or not. You know, if you have one of those days where you're wishing humanity to be gone, <laughs> it's actually okay. <laughs> those days do come. We can still make the intention in words that still helps the practice move forward. I had a friend who had practiced in uh, the Tibetan tradition for many years, and he came on a Vipassana tr- retreat. And he was sharing me his experience on the retreat. And he said, it was, he said it was the most disturbing and crazy thing to start a meditation where not everybody was making this altruistic intention before they were sitting. He just thought it was weird that, that somehow meditation was separate from having this intention uh, for the liberation of all beings. It was completely crazy. I actually had to agree with him. <laughs> There's something, and hopefully through this talk, you'll get the sense that what you're doing on your cushion, that that is just the natural expression of what we're doing when we really sink into the deep wisdom that arises from this practice. There's no other way to really make sense of what we're doing, I think, when we touch the depths of wisdom. But this is about practicing for all beings. And, And please, when I go through this, I, I want to be clear, I'm not making an argument saying that if we just sit, we're going to solve all the world's problems. All of that positive energy is going to undo something like climate change. I just want to be clear, I think that's childish thinking. That's not what this is about. But I do feel 
that this intention and what you're doing here does play a significant role and a much needed role in this world that does lead to peace, that leads to more equanimity and compassion and love in the midst of difficulty in this world. And especially on long retreats. I think there's something very sacred about this long retreat. Something can unfold on a long retreat that just doesn't seem that we get to on shorter retreats. So again, how, how is this perspective I'm proposing to you of bringing this intention in? Again, how is it personally helpful and how is it helpful to the world? In terms of my own practice on retreat, what I've noticed is that it, it allows us to step out of what I'd call the narrow confinement of kind of that obsessiveness, that obsessive self-involvement that happens in these minds of ours and allows us to step into a vastness, the vastness of the Dharma. And a kind of vastness that reaches much farther than just our own lives. Maybe by now on the retreat, you've noticed how confining obsessive self-involvement is. <laughs> Rebecca spoke to this in terms of the thought world. Noticing what so many of our thoughts revolve around. As she put it, mostly they evolve around, I want this, or evolving around, I don't want that. If it's not one of those, it's some other story that's evolving around me. It's amazing, right? You're doing mocking med- walking meditation and some big storm in the mind about the past or the future. Planning out that part of your life planning out this part of your life, rewriting that part of your history, fantasizing this kind of future or that kind of future. It's actually kind of exhausting just to talk about. (laughs) John Ruskin put it well. He said, when a person is wrapped up in themselves, they make a pretty small package. So again, you've probably noticed what it feels like to be confined in a pretty small package. And have you also noticed what it's like to step out of that when you notice the mind planning and planning and planning and you can see it just for planning for what it is, that it's just a thought and the relief that comes from that, from stepping out of the small package and into just this moment. And again, I'm not proposing that we don't take care of ourselves or be kind to ourselves. It's just bringing it into a broader context. What does this practice look like to practice for others? The 
Buddha, Buddha tells a story about this. This is in the Connected Discourses. It's on the section on the four foundations of mindfulness. And he tells this story to the monastics, which begins, once upon a time, practitioners, a bamboo acrobat setting himself upon his bamboo pole addressed his assistant, Medikatalika. Come you, my dear Medikatalika, and climbing up the bamboo pole, stand upon my shoulders. Okay, master, the assistant Medikatalika replied to the bamboo acrobat. And climbing up the bamboo pole, she stood on the master's shoulders. Just want to stop here to make sure you have the image correct. So there's this bamboo pole, and then the, uh, the, uh, the master acrobat, he climbs up on time, top of the bamboo pole, and he's balancing on that pole. And then his, his assistant, she climbs up the pole, then climbs up over him on top of his shoulders, and then balances on top of his shoulders. This is their trick. So then the bamboo acrobat said to his assistant, Medikatalika, you look after me, my dear Medikatalika, and I'll look after you. Thus, with us looking after one another, guarding one another, we'll show off our craft, receive some payment, and safely climb down the bamboo pole. This being said, the assistant Medikatalika said this to the bamboo acrobat, that will not do at all, master. You look after yourself, and I will look after myself. Thus, with each of us looking after ourselves, guarding ourselves, we'll show off our craft, receive some payment, and safely climb down the bamboo pole. That's the right way to do it. And then the Buddha says, just so. Just like the assistant Medikatalika said to her master, I will look after myself, so should you practitioners practice the establishment of mindfulness, saying, I will look after others. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. And how does one look after others? By looking after oneself. By practicing mindfulness, by developing it. And how does one look after oneself? By looking after others through patience, through non-harming, by loving kindness. Thus, looking after oneself, one looks after others, and looking after others, one looks after oneself. Very clear. In order to look after others, we look after ourselves through through this practice of mindfulness. And and there's a few things about this story that I I find uh, compelling. Who's the teacher in the story? One, it's the assistant. And two, it's a woman at a time when women were not on the same footing as men. It was the person outside the dominant power structure that had the wisdom. 
do you hear again, even in this story, this, I feel like this comes back again and again to the way the Buddha teaches, undermining the dominant paradigm of, of power. As I was saying in my first talk, undermining the Brahminical structure of how power is shared and what is valued. And a striking image, a, a situation where people are intertwined with one another, balanced on one another. This is the quality of interdependence. My inner balance helps with the whole picture. And this is what I really want to emphasize, especially on retreat, and you might have noticed this, is that we can have the feeling that we actually live in a vacuum, that this is all about my life. It's just not the case. We live in this interdependent web. The image that I I, I appreciate around this, that gives me a feeling sense of this, comes from YN Buddhism. It rises out of YN Buddhism. It was a school of Buddhism that was... uh, uh, centered around the sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra. And it's this image of Indra's net. And Indra's net is this net that expands out infinitely in all directions. And at each node of the net is a jewel, a multifaceted jewel. And if you were to look in one of those jewels, you'd see reflected in it all the other jewels in the net an interdependent web where in one jewel you can see all the other jewels. In this sense, practicing for oneself and others is actually already happening on this retreat. It's impossible for it not to be happening. To think it's not happening is just a delusion. It comes from our lack of wisdom. And just on a basic level, I want to point this out. You know, I know quite a few people around this time of year in the fall will will say something to me like, knowing that there are people sitting on the three-month retreat supports their practice in the fall. Sometimes it's people who have been on this retreat before. And this time of year comes around. And it's a kind of support that all of you are sitting here. And if you've done the three-month retreat and have, have skipped a year, you, you might know this feeling of going through the fall and having these memories and feeling the support. You're, you're actually supporting people by being here. And you, you probably, and you might have friends and colleagues or people from your sangha that are moved by what you're doing that actually know that you're here and you're supporting them in some way. And your other friends and colleagues just think you're crazy. (laughs) That's part of it. (laughs) And I I feel like it's important to bring this fact into your practice. Because it it can help step out of this narrow confinement of self-obsession. I, this, this actually helped me quite a bit of sensing into this when I was, again, a, a Zen monk. 
there was a period of time during my training that was actually the tar- darkest time of my life. It was that feeling, and maybe some of you have gone through this, where you're going through the motions of living, but you don't feel like you're living anymore. There's a flatness and deadness to everything you're doing. So the movements of there are there, but it doesn't feel like there's any life left. And there really wasn't much keeping me going. But this sense to know that somehow being at the the Zen Center and knowing that other people were thinking about it, that was just a small glimmer of hope to, to keep on going. And then the other piece was the feeling of, sometimes I think this is dark thoughts I want to admit, but okay, so nothing's going to come from my practice because it's so horrible here. Yet I'm keep, at least, at least I'm keeping something going for the next generation. And just that is enough to keep on going. And that is enough of a benefit. Even if my mind wanders all the time, keeping something going for those who come after me of feeling myself in a lineage of practitioners. And it felt uplifting to know that I was at least keeping something going that had the potential for liberation. Again, a a powerful image that comes to my mind around this is something that happened in the Southwest probably hundreds if not thousands of years ago with some of the Native American tribes in that area is some of the tribes would have this nomadic route through the Southwest. And in some places, what they would do is they would bury and preserve um, lots of corn. Yet what they discovered is that the corn that they were burying would not be for them, them because their route would be so long that by the time the tribe got back to that place, the generation that had put it there would have died and it was for the next generation. What a striking way to think and to move in the world. To always be leaving something behind and for the next generation. What a beautiful sense of doing something that's broader than just our own lives leaving the corn in the ground, the nourishment, so that it can be there for the next generation. This practice that you're doing, again, reaches much farther than just your own life. Another example. It's an example of healing that dovetails with, with this process of awakening. And this is something that I witnessed when I was doing some trauma work with this woman who had been in a series of abusive relationships, and had been caught in this cycle. And she started to step out of this cycle of, of finding herself in these abusive relationships and uh, began to heal from this, heal this dynamic. And as we began to work, she began to realize that, that she was healing a dynamic that had stretched back for generations in some various form in her family. And, and she started to have this feeling as, as she was doing this healing work of stopping a dynamic that really went beyond her own life. 
And, and quite striking dreams started to arise. And this was from her uh, worldview. This might not fit in to your worldview, but from her world uh, view, she felt like she was being visited in her dreams by her ancestors, mostly women, women coming to her in her dreams and thanking her. Thanking her for stopping, stopping the dynamic. So having this feeling of, of, of healing not just her own wounds, but generations of wounds, and not only healing it, but stopping a dynamic from continuing to happen that had been going on for generations. And that's a powerful thing. And I feel that what you're doing here has the same kind of power that you're stopping something. You're putting an end to old habitual patterns through this practice that you're doing that have been going on for a really long time. One way, I think it's a way of understanding the story that we're given in early Buddhism around rebirth. Someone once asked Chogyam Trinkpa, what gets reborn? And he said, your bad habits. (laughs) What a wonderful thing to, um, to stop rebirth around your bad habits, to actually put an end to it. putting an end to these old habitual patterns that have been going on for generations. This is a powerful way of understanding what it means to no longer to come to birth in the womb, no longer giving birth to such things. And I feel this view can be so helpful for the stuff that can come up and arise on a retreat. To remember that all this stuff, all this difficult stuff that arises, in many ways has nothing to do with you. It's all these causes and conditions that have come together that have arisen to create this. It's, in some ways, it's merely what you've inherited. Have you noticed what a drag it is to take all this personally? It's actually much bigger than that. Yes, you you need to take responsibility for what arises, but that's different than blame. Hopefully you can see or you're beginning to see how this fits well in this teaching on Indra's net. That what you're doing here, when you sit here day after day, sit after sit, it reverberates into this world. There's no way that it can't. 
There's no way that this can happen in a vacuum. So even if you desperately wanted this to be a self-centered thing, sorry, it just can't happen. And, and now what I want to move into is to show that seeing this fact, that it's impossible to do this practice in a self-centric way, shows how bodhicitta, this intention, is actually inter- intimately intertwined with wisdom. It's naturally, it naturally outflow, flows out of wisdom. There's no way that it can't when we have a deeper and deeper realization around experience. And in particular, it's seen through this delusion that I spoke about at first, that me, this self, and when I use this word self, being some kind of separate, fixed identity that lives in some kind of vacuum that might bump into other people, but is somehow separate. And what we're doing here through, through the practice that you're engaging in is dismantling that delusion. Seeing where this sense of self comes from, how it's constructed. And you, you might be beginning to see this, how it's made, how it's created, this sense of self out of this fluid flowing, arising and passing away of phenomena. How it gets formed around sensations coming and going, around emotions coming and going, perceptions and feeling tones, and even consciousness. We grab onto a piece of experience and say, this is me. Some examples of this, classic examples of this, around the body, and and Oren touched upon this. The body, when you sense into the body, it's this experience actually of flowing sensations, of sensations arising and passing away. And then from that, there can be this concept, oh, this is my body, as if it's something fixed and static. And then I claim it. I say, this is my body. And a lot of times, I then create some kind of concept around it. We do this in all sorts of ways. One way I noticed this was the image I had of myself. It was a little embarrassing, but for years, I had an image of myself that I I only had a receding hairline. You might notice the, the top of my head... That's not what you call a receding hairline. That's, there's not much hair left up there. <laughs> but for some reason, I hadn't completely taken that in. A receding hairline like, was like way in the past. <laughs> we do this in all kinds of ways. And what, what can be even more painful, though, is, is I, I get an image of who I am as a healthy person or one with a healthy body and the ouch of, of when that changes, because then it, it ruptures who I am. Creating a sense of self around the body. Or what we find pleasant and unpleasant. That's the example I gave. Who am I? I, I am one that finds raisins and oatmeal unpleasant. That's who I am. I don't like it. And then I form who I am around that what I like and what I don't like, what I find pleasant and unpleasant. This is Vedana. Or it can be around the, the, the mind that um, we, we spoke about volition and intention. 
well, who is it that moves the arm? I'm the one that does it. There has to be a subject to that. And this is something that we undermine by paying attention to becoming sensitive to intention to notice that intention arises and passes away. It undermines that. Or perception, perception being the quality of mind that names. Who is it that names that that's a bird that I hear? I'm the one that names that. But you might have the experience that perception simply arises and passes away. Or who is aware? I am aware. You might notice there is no fixed sense of self within awareness. And what have I just gone through? These are the five khandas. These five areas that we claim to be me or mine. We cling to upadana khanda. We cling to and create a self. This world that we live in, it's so much more fluid than some noun called a self. And a caveat, I do want to name, there is a place for the use of a self. Actually, uh, having a strong sense of self is very important for living our lives. Talking about issues of identity is very important in terms of marginalization, the conversation around marginalization and oppression. And I might be giving a talk about this a little bit later about self and not self. So it has a use to it, but we also have to skillfully see um, how to skillfully use it and not be hooked by it. So I hope you're hearing just the simple practice that you're doing, how it starts to undermine the sense of self by seeing how phenomena arises and passes away. Sensations arise and pass away. Emotions arise and pass away. These things that we claim to be me. And I invite you to keep it simple. It's just that. It's just noticing moment after moment after moment with acceptance. Noticing the thoughts that come and go, the sensations that come and go. Keeping it simple. Noticing that this construct, even that I am walking, is different than the actual experience of walking. One thing that I find helpful for this, that you might want to remember to allow it to to unfold in this way, is is a, a, a quote from uh, John Cage. John Cage, Cage was an a avant-garde composer, or he called himself an inventor. He said, I'm trying to become unfamiliar with what I'm doing. Can you become unfamiliar with what you're doing to undermine this fixed concept of a self? And and just a little bit about John Cage to help bring out this unfamiliarity, which I find helpful, is I I like to bring to mind the composition that he was most famous for, that some of you might know, called 4.33 or 4 minutes and 33 seconds, which was a a composition uh, that had three movements and the instructions that it was for any number of instruments, and there was one instruction for each of the movements, which were, was for each of the musicians not to play. And interestingly, this, there's some confusion around this. He, the, the intention, it was not a composition around silence. It was 
so that the musicians didn't play anything, so that the ambient sounds were then seen as music. It was his attempt to actually undermine our concept of what, about what music is. Can you become unfamiliar with what you're doing here? Unfamiliar with walking, with breathing, with standing, with sitting down, with hearing. Becoming unfamiliar with it. It's also important to remember when I'm talking about uh, this becoming unfamiliar that uh, please don't look for the dramatic. So much of what happens on a, a meditation retreat is, is this searching for the aha moment or that there's some going to be some great breakthrough. And if that happens, great. <laughs> if you don't have one of those, it doesn't mean that your practice is not unfolding. I, I know of, of teachers or people that I hold in high esteem that I feel like have a deep level of awakening that have never had an aha experience. But gradually, their minds have come to see through this fixed sense of self. It was nothing dramatic, but it was profound. For many people, it's just the ordinary experience that you see moment after moment and taking it in for what it is. I like to remember this quote from the Zen master Taishan from the 9th century. He says, what is known as realizing the mystery or what is known as awakening is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. What is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. Can you break through and grab the ordinariness of this moment without the fabrications. You might be hearing now how this wisdom that I'm talking about is intimately intertwined with this, this sense of practicing for the benefit of all beings. When we break down this fixed sense of self, we enter into an interdependent world, which the natural response is compassion and caring and practicing for others, because that's the reality that we're in. So you might want to give this a try just to bring in this intention, maybe before and after a sit, if it fits for you. I'd like to end with a, a dedication uh, uh, from a red Tara, Tara practice. This comes from, uh, I heard, uh, Chagdud Rinpoche. It goes, throughout my many lives and until this moment, whatever virtue I have accomplished, including the merit generated by this practice and all that I will ever attain, this I offer for the welfare of sentient beings. May sickness, war, famine, and suffering be decreased for every living being while their wisdom and compassion increase in this and every future life. 
May I clearly perceive all experiences to be as insubstantial as the dream fabric of the night and instantly awaken to perceive the pure wisdom display in the arising of every phenomenon. May I quickly attain enlightenment in order to work ceaselessly for the liberation of all sentient beings. So let's sit for a moment. Throughout my many lives and until this moment, whatever virtue I have accomplished, including the merit generated by this practice and all that I will ever attain, this I offer for the welfare of sentient beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.